The Fanny Mechanic Show with Dr. Tash, where we dive in, go deep, and open up about women's health. Hello and welcome everyone to this week's episode of The Fanny Mechanic Show. I am your host, Dr. Natasha Andriatis, aka Dr. Tash. This week we dive into the topic of MTHFR and methylation. We go deep with naturopath, herbalist, and nutritionist Caroline Ladowski. Caroline opens up about her views on the role of methylation and its importance in hormone metabolism, infertility, miscarriage, and sperm health. She also gives us some tips on running an online business. A number of years ago, when I first set up in private practice, I had a number of patients mention Caroline to me, so I made an appointment to see her, armed with my 23andMe genetic results. I was curious about what she had to say about my genetic makeup and the corresponding biochemistry and hormone profile. It opened up a whole new world for me. So what does methylation do in the body? It plays a role in modulating inflammation, balancing neurotransmitters needed for healthy mood, sleep and digestion, keeps the immune system strong, metabolizes toxins and hormones such as estrogen. It is crucial for DNA synthesis and the production of choline needed for brain health and development, all of which are needed to create the environment for a healthy pregnancy and baby. Recently, I received an email from a doctor asking me if I knew much about MTHFR and its role in the body. Yes, I know a little bit about MTHFR and methylation, but not as much as Caroline Nadowski. Her passion on this topic is unmatched. A bit about Caroline. Caroline Nadowski is the founder of MTHFR Support Australia. She is a naturopath, a herbalist and nutritionist who has a Bachelor of Herbal Medicine, Bachelor of Naturopathy, Advanced Diploma of Naturopathy and Diploma of Nutrition, and a Bachelor of Economics from Sydney University. She also studied courses in genetics at Duke University, in genetics and evolution, and the University of Maryland, genes and the human condition from behavior to biotechnology. She is currently completing a Bachelor of Health Science, Naturopathy Honours. Caroline now sees chronically ill patients from all over the world who have searched sometimes for decades to find the reason behind their ill health. Her strength lies in her ability to reveal layers of dysfunction and not give up until results are seen. Most of her patients have MTHFI mutations and associated methylation disturbances. Her key passion is fertility and her mission is to make sure that every couple knows if they have the MTHFR and associated genes that could affect their chances of falling pregnant. Her practice specializes in genetic susceptibility and how this contributes to biochemical dysfunction and chronic health conditions. I hope you enjoy our chat. Caroline Ladowski, thank you for joining me today. You are most welcome. It's lovely to be here, Natasha. You are the most passionate person uh, in regards to the methylation cycle that I know of, so it's uh, a privilege to actually have some of your time because I know how super busy you are. Can you explain to our listeners uh, when and why you started MTHFR Support? Give us a bit of background Mm. about you. Yes. I am a firm believer that the blood tell you a lot about what's going on with a patient. So I've always been very fastidious in really trying to understand what they mean and, and what, what sort of clues that they can give us. And when I first started out, I really used to look at red cell folate and B12 particularly. And what I noticed was half my population had elevated red cell folate, or I think we were doing serum folate back, back in those days. And I thought, why? Why would half the people have really high levels and the other half be okay? So I rang the lab and I said, look, what what exactly are you measuring here? And they said, derivatives of folate. And I thought, well, what, what, what does that mean? What, what are you testing? Well, we're testing all folate. But that's a really good sign because it means they're having a lot of leafy green vegetables. And I thought, no, they're not. I knew these patients were not having a lot of leafy greens. So I started to research the significance of folate and why would folate be disturbed in some people. 
And I came, oh, it took me months and months and months. And I came across this paper on MTHFR and what it was and how it affected folate levels. And I thought, oh my goodness, this makes so much sense. So I then went into it with my patients and those people that had high levels, I took them off folic acid and gave them what I considered to be the active folate. In those days, you couldn't get it in Australia, so I used to bring it in from the US and give it to my patients. And um, lo and behold, these people would feel better, they would have more energy, their folate in the blood would actually come down, and from a pregnancy point of view, they had way more successful pregnancies and usually... I would say nine out of 10 times there were no miscarriages. So I thought, hmm, okay, this is definitely something. And the more I talked about and did MTHFR with my patients, the more I got into the ancillary genetics around methylation because obviously MTHFR is just one piece of a big methylation picture. Yeah, I remember seeing you years ago with my 23andMe results and I didn't know what any of it meant and you made a lot of sense as you were going through it. Uh, How many patients a day do you see with MTHFR issues? Just so we can appreciate the volume that comes through your clinic. Well, every single patient that I see um, and have seen for the last eight years knows they have MTHFR. Right, okay. So you're talking Mm. tens of thousands. Um, And what was really interesting is that when I changed the name of my business to MTHFR Sport Australia, I increased my business within three months by about 350%. So what that told me was that this was very consumer-driven. It was not... I mean, none of my um, my fellow naturopaths or doctors really knew anything about it, yet the patients knew so much. And that was a really interesting phenomenon to me because it just say, says to me that, you know, when, when the medical system doesn't work for a patient and that they know they're not well and they know they, they're sick, they will go to so many greater length to try and understand what's going on with them and their research was amazing and they would ask me and really challenge me um, and talk about different genes and that's how I learned because I needed to be one step ahead of my patients all the time and so I just delved into this biochemistry world and wanted to know everything I possibly could. So speaking of biochemistry, can you explain to our listeners in simple terms the the methylation pathway, which is, of course, where MTHFR comes into it? Uh, It can be a very complex thing to understand, but are you able to break it down for us in in a simple way? Yes, I can make it really simple. So your biochemical pathways that support major functions in the body like detoxification, hormones, fat metabolism, brain chemicals for, you know, anxiety, depression, sleep, etc. DNA for fertility, etc., etc. So many of these important processes rely on one simple little group called a methyl group. And this methyl is made of a carbon and three hydrogens. It's very, very simple. And it has an open arm. And that little open arm is there to latch on to proteins and enzymes and it makes them work. So without this little methyl group, all those really important functions that we just talked about won't work as efficiently because they can only be activated or deactivated in the ca- in the in the case of cancer-promoting genes, they can only be deactivated with this little methyl. And so what the MTHFR gene does, it stands for methylene 
tetrahydrofolate reductase. It's a fancy word for an enzyme that makes your active folate. So unless you are making active folate, you can't make these methyl groups that make everything work. So that's why it's so critically important because if you've got the methyl group, then the rest of the biochemistry is happy. If you haven't, and, and we use these little methyl groups every day, every second of every day, because when you're stressed, the whole pathway is upregulated. When you're chronically tired or when you push yourself too much um, from a work perspective or when you've had a stressful situation like a death of a loved one or you've come into contact with um, chemicals or you've got multiple chemical sensitivity or you're allergic to perfumes, all of these things activate this pathway because it's how your body gets itself better. So what people find, particularly those with MTHFR, is the more environmental exposure and the more stressed they are, the bigger the hole they fall into because they haven't got the capacity to catch up because the MTHFR gene, in, in the instance of some people, is really down-regulating it by about 70%. So they, they just don't have a catch-up mechanism. So what we do in our clinic is we don't just look at fertility patients, but we look at chronic fatigue and a lot of anxiety and depression, and we work out where their genetic susceptibility is and then what happened environmentally to impact that, and we work on it from two levels. So we plug up the pothole of the genetic susceptibility and we deal with whatever environmentally has made it worse, whether that be stress or mould or Lyme or gut infections or candida or whatever it happens to be. So that's hopefully a very simple explanation of why this whole methylation pathway is so important. Do you know who coined the term uh, genetics loads the gun, environment pulls the trigger? Yes, yes. So what basically what that means is that, again, the genetic loads the gun, which means the trigger is there and the environment pulls the trigger because the environment is ultimately the thing that makes this worse. It makes the gene express, which means that it can't cope, it can't catch up, and it's the same as many of our genetics. But your environment is not just what you see in the air, your environment is the stress you have, what you eat, what you drink, the, the environment you have at home, um, the chemicals you're exposed to at work, the amount of exercise you do or don't do. I mean, the, the environment is really everything. So when we look at genes, we talk about polymorphisms, so... Uh, I, being of Greek background, I, I break that work down that word down, and I understand what it means. Poly being many, and then morphs meaning you know the way something looks or appears. Um, yes. Can you talk to us more about the MTHFR A one two nine AC and the C sixty seven seven T polymorphisms and what that means for people? What what how how would people interpret their results? Okay, so you have. There are actually 30 different MTHFR genes, but the two that are most studied and that we understand the most are the A1298C and the C677T. So essentially when you have a gene like that, and if we take the C677T, it means that a cytosine has been changed to a thymine at position 6 Seven, seven, and that happens to ha happen on chromosome one. So when you hear those numbers, it's what is meant to be and what is being changed and at what position on the chromosome. So that's what the numbers mean. Now, for every gene in the body, your mum and your dad has one, well, they have two copies, but they're going to donate to you, the child, one copy randomly. We don't know what that random copy is going to be, but 
But let's say both your mum and dad gave you two mutated copies of the C677T. That means you are homozygous, homo meaning the same. So you have two copies of the gene that you got from mum and dad, so you are homozygous for the C677T. Now, in the case of the 677T, we know that homozygous is a down regulation of that enzyme by about 60 to 70%. If you got one copy from mum or dad, we don't know, but it's mum or dad, your down regulation is about 30 to 40%, and we call that heterozygous, hetero being one. So in the case of the A1298C, same deal. Adenine is being changed to a cytosine at position 1298. And if you got a copy from mum and dad, you would still be homozygous for the A1298C. The down regulation is about 40 to 50%. And if you only got one copy, which is heterozygous, it's about a 20% down regulation. So when we talk about a polymorphism, we used to say mutation. We don't say that anymore. We say polymorphism. And essentially, it means it is different to what is expected. So it doesn't, in all genes, doesn't mean it's bad. It doesn't mean you're going to die. It doesn't mean that there's a, a major problem. It means you have a different genetic result to what is expected. Now, in the case of MTHFR, it means that you don't create as much folate, active folate, as you should. Therefore, the more environmental pressure you have on yourself, the less you're going to catch up and the greater the effect. And in the case of fertility, we know that those that are particularly homozygous for the C677T, and I would also say A1298B, they're more likely to have miscarriages. Why? Because folate is the most important nutrient for good quality DNA, and therefore you are more likely to miscarry in the first trimester. For cardiovascular disease, we also know that those that are homozygous are more likely to have an elevation in homocysteine. It's an amino acid, but it does give us some sort of assessment of cardiovascular risk. The higher the homocysteine, the more likely you are to have elevated blood pressure, stroke, um, etc. And there's a lot of research about so many different conditions. But from a medical standpoint, if you saw a doctor they would really only evaluate your C677T homozygous. They would not consider anything else being important because they only relate it to an elevation in homocysteine. But what we know from the research that has been out for many, many years now is that the A1298C, if you consider it still can affect folate levels by 50%, has a huge impact, particularly on mental health, um, on depression, uh, but also we know um, with male fertility, um, you can it, it does affect the quality of the sperm. Can you go through some definitions for us? So folic acid, folate, folinic acid, 5-methyltetrahydrofolate. I know there's a lot of confusion around these, these words. Can you clarify for us which ones are the ones we need to be focusing on? Yes. So there's, unfortunately, the terminology for folate um, across the board, whether you're talking about research studies or um, the way that um, medical practitioners talk about folate, folate just means folate. And a lot of the times folate means folic acid. So the three forms of folate that we have available to us are firstly folic acid. Now that is a man-made supplemental form of folate. It is synthetic 
and it can only be used if the body can use it. So in the case of those people with MTHFR, where we know that the MTHFR gene is down-regulated, it's not the best form to use because they have a block at the last step of their folate pathway and folic acid is at the top. So it's not really going to help people very much by using the synthetic form. We have two actives. One is called selenic acid and one is called methylfolate and, and we also call methylfolate 5-methyltetrahydrofolate. So we have those two. And again, people with MTHFR polymorphisms still have to convert selenic. Even though selenic is considered to be um, an active folate, it's not as active as methylfolate because methylfolate is the one that the body is going to use. And essentially, you still have to convert selenic acid to methylfolate. So when I talk about active folate, I'm really talking about methylfolate or 5-methyltetrahydrofolate. It's also known as metafolin by the different brand names. It's known as 5-MTHF. It's known as quatrifolic. But there are many different forms of the 5-methyltetrahydrofolate. Given what you've discussed then, why don't all supplements just come with the methylfolate? given what we know about polymorphisms? Well, it's more expensive for a start um, and I think that was always the biggest barrier um, because folic acid is more stable. Because it's synthetic, they can put it in food, they can put it in supplements, it's really stable and they don't really have to worry about it and it's just always been there. When in my book, that's really not an excuse to keep using something that you don't know that you know is not necessarily the best form. We have supplements nowadays, though, and we produce them with both selenic and methylfolate. And the reason we still have the two is that many people get a reaction when they take methylfolate, and it's usually because these pathways are blocked up. And it will either be, you know, gut function or they might have candida or they might have some sort of infection or not enough B12. So there's a block in their ability to use methylfolate. So many people would say, oh, well, if you can't take methylfolate, take selenic or take folic. But in my book, if you can't take methylfolate, then there's a problem and you've got to fix that problem because ultimately you should be able to take the methylfolate. So what could that problem be? What's a common problem you see for people not being able to use methylfolate? It's usually gut. Um, I would say nine times out of ten, it's someone with a candida problem or parasites or just gut not working properly. And probably the number one reason is a lack of B12. So many people I've discovered have polymorphisms in their B12 genes that actually affect how much B12 they can get into the cell. And without B12, you can't use methylfolate. So forget taking it. If you haven't got enough B12, there is a big problem. So I very much worry about vegetarians and vegans. And given we've got this trend at the moment, everyone wanting to be a, a vegan, um, it's actually a very dangerous thing because, and many of the people with MTHFR polymorphisms that I have seen who are vegans or vegetarians, when they get sick, they get really sick because they just don't have B12 to help them at all. At least if your B12 levels were high, what little methylfolate you make, you could still utilise. But these people, they really, really get sick. Chronic fatigue, um, you know, many of them have had cancer, um, and they just mentally and physically just can't work properly. So, And you, you usually find that it happens 18 months to two years 
post being a vegan or vegetarian. So given this, you know, YouTube video that, that went out, I guess it was probably about a year ago now, we've now got a year of people who want to save the planet and be vegans and vegetarians, and I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with that, but they're not fortifying um, or taking B12. So their ability to have their methylation pathways working is severely compromised, and I very much worry about their health. So what are common food sources uh, for vitamin B12? Meat, essentially meat. Meat protein is the most important. And if anyone thinks they can get enough um, B12 from vegetables, they are severely mistaken. It's really only meat protein that gives us um, a good amount of B12. With B12 tests, can you explain the difference between serum B12, active B12, why you would do them? How does it change what you do? Mm. I used to, uh, I will do serum B12 um, because at least it gives me some indication of where they're at. Um, Our reference ranges in Australia, if you look at, say, Douglas Hanley Moyer, they will have as their minimum um, 135 picomoles per litre and it might go up to 350. Now, I can tell you if anyone has got you know, 135 or even I would say 350 is a really low B12. And I would then be looking at reasons why their B12 was so low. So don't forget B12 really relies on gut function. And so we need good levels of hydrochloric acid. We need intrinsic factor in the gut wall. We need pancreatic enzymes. We need transcobalamin, which is a, um, a like a, Think of it like a train that ferries your B12 into the cell. And many people have genetic um, mutations in this transcobalamin gene. So the biggest problem that we have is that they're not eating it, they're not getting it, and they're not utilising their folate because of it. So we look at serum B12 And then we also look, we do organic acids tests and we look at what's called MMA, methylmalonic acid. And this gives us an indication, if it's elevated, that B12 is low. But it's more in relation to, so just like folate, our B12, we have active B12. And we have an energy B12, which is called adenosylcobalamin. And we have a neurological B12, which is called methylcobalamin. So serum B12 is giving and holotranscobalamin, which is what you called active B12, gives us more of a measure of methylcobalamin, but the MMA, the methylmalonic acid, gives us more of an indication of adenosyl B12, which is our energy B12. So I look at different things to give me ideas about the different forms of folate. Because ideally... We want people to be able to make both adenosyl and methyl. But if someone comes to me with severe anxiety and depression, I'm not going to use adenosyl cobalamin, which is their energy B12. I'm going to use methyl cobalamin because I want it to work neurologically. If someone comes to me with chronic fatigue, and I believe part of the problem is if I've looked at their genetics and they can't make adenosyl, I'll give them adenosyl cobalamin. So like folate, when we work out what we're doing with B12, we're also working out which form is the best and how do we best give it. With, um, with some of our shared patients, I've, I've sent quite a lot of patients to you. Um, I know you have. Thank you. <laughs> I thought I'd bring up a case. Obviously, I'm not going to mention this patient's name. And she saw you pretty recently, the last few months. She is a a 39-year-old lady and she has one child um, that was conceived without delay. She had a high blood pressure post-delivery and since then has been trying to have second bub and has had two miscarriages, five-week pregnancy losses, no fetal heart rates noted. 
Uh, she, on further testing, had a low antral follicle count and a low AMH. And uh, we talked about, you know, what are the potential reasons as to why she miscarried. And, of course, age came up, low ovarian reserve, low egg quality. And then we also talked about MTHFR, of course. She brought it up. And uh, she came back with MTHFR, the A129AC homozygous. And uh, you had noted that she had a low vitamin B12. Uh, you uh, wanted her to have serum B12 and active B12. Um, you also noted that she had a low day 21 progesterone and you wanted her partner checked as well. And interestingly, she uh, has recurrent uh, HSV2 infections and um, you wrote in your letter to me that this depletes lysine and lysine is key to B6 absorption. And I thought, oh, wow, I didn't know this. This is interesting. Um, I don't know. You probably remember this patient, but could you talk more on, on this case for us? Mm. So one of the things that we know um, about whether your MTHFR A1298C or C677T homozygous we know that obviously the DNA comes from both mom and dad and it is a 50% donation. So we always have to check both sides because what the research tells us is even if dad has an MTHR polymorphism and mum doesn't, she can miscarry. And the reason for that is that because of the folate that is vital for both sperm production and egg quality, and DNA synthesis, obviously, both parents need to be very high with um, their folate. And in some instances, particularly with that particular patient, I would push her folate level way past what would be considered the normal level of folate um, to achieve A, a pregnancy, and B, a successful pregnancy. And I do that for at least four months. Now, What's really interesting with her case, and it's like that for many of them, is that you see a, a history of low progesterone. And the thing about folate is that it is absolutely critical to, as we said, make SAMe. And SAMe is there to support our hormones, our detoxification, our estrogen, and you also see that many of these women have an inability to get rid of toxic estrogen. So they're in what we call an estrogen-dominant type condition because their body isn't clearing it effectively. They don't have enough glutathione to support that. They don't have enough folate to support their hormone synthesis anyway. Now, so what we do is we look at how we can clear that toxic estrogen, which then increases their good estrogen. We support the folate so that we ensure that they are creating really good quality DNA. And then once that happens and we have this high estrogen out of the system, we can normally see that progesterone will increase. But when you see this history of a herpes-type virus you know that lysine is going to be depleted. Now, lysine is the most important amino acid that is activated when our body's cell danger response is, there's go, all right, there is something, there is a problem here. We've got a virus, we've got a bug, we've got whatever we happen to, do, happen to have. We're going to use all the lysine because that helps us deal with the virus. And so... One of the most important things in our current coronavirus situation is lysine is going to be critically important for many people, particularly if they're prone to viruses. So, but lysine is absolutely critical for B6 absorption. So if I see B6 and, and many doctors send patients to me and they'll, they'll note that and the patient will come in and say, my doctor says I can't have B6 because it's elevated. And I say, well, the reason it's elevated is because you're not actually utilizing it. So I give lysine. I'll give lysine for two to three weeks and retest the B6 and it will always come down. And once you've got the lysine in there, 
you can then utilize your B6. And B6, as we know, is critically important for hormones, but it's also important for neurotransmitters. It's also important for detoxification because it stimulates that pathway that makes our major antioxidant glutathione. And it's also critically important for our dealing of bugs because one of the pathways in this methylation cycle is called the kynurenin pathway and it helps us deal with infection and reduces inflammatory markers, but it's B6 dependent. So if B6 gets low, many of these pathways that we're looking for to have good methylation capacity will be depleted. Mm. And, and I, also, I also don't mind. Like for me, I don't worry about a woman's age anymore. I used to, but I don't worry because I really believe if we can improve the folate status, improve hormones overall, improve B6 and zinc status, I've got many patients who have fallen pregnant well into their 40s and, you know, they, they seem to have successful pregnancies and healthy children. So I'm not so much worried about age anymore. I guess I'm more worried about um, endometriosis because we know folate. If we give folate, it can actually make endo worse. So it's a very fine line between, you know, how much folate can we give before we make the endo worse? And I guess at the end of the day, you just got to go really quickly. And that's when I would send them back to you and go, righto. This is the problem. Go for it. Do the IVF as quickly as you possibly can. How does folate uh, aggravate endo? I've never heard of that actually. Uh, because it is, it, it helps with proliferation of cells. Of course, yeah. So when you when you've got an active, um, you know, process like endometriosis, which is that huge proliferation of cells, you've um, you've got an active disease being stimulated. So. It is just a, it's a tricky situation, but you've got to try and get the estrogen dominance under control and then hit it really hard with a folate for a short amount of time to get them pregnant as quickly as possible. Yeah, I mean, we often say that uh, endometriosis acts like a cancer. So uh, that's right. That makes that's sense. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, and B6, of course, is important for managing PMS, isn't it? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Definitely. With the detoxification pathways, um, people see that word detoxification and think, oh, that doesn't really exist, but our body certainly has ways of detoxifying and we know that the liver does a hugely important uh, role, plays an important role in that with the phase one and phase two detoxification pathways. Can you explain that in simple terms for Mm. us, especially in relation to estrogen? Yes. So think of phase one as your pulling apart phase. So when a toxin comes into the body or the body makes a toxin, phase one's job is to pull that toxin apart and make it more water-soluble so that phase two can grab it and eliminate it from the body. And it does that through urination and, um, you know, stools and sweat, basically. So... When we look at estrogen, there are two key genes that have a huge impact on someone's ability to get toxic estrogen out of the body. And those are in phase one, it's the CYP1B1. And in phase two, it's the COMPT, catechol O methyltransferase gene. Now, these two work in tandem to basically break it apart and then grab it and get rid of it. So in the case of if someone has a polymorphism in one or or both of these, and it's very, very common, then they do a rough job of breaking it apart. They don't do it particularly well. And then phase two is not picking up the pathway to do what it needs to do. Now, the biggest problem, remember we said, Genetics is your susceptibility, but the environment is really the key. So if, for example, you have these genes that make you susceptible 
we have so many fake estrogens in our environment. So we have the coffee cup that you drink your coffee out of in the morning with the plastic lid. All the um, receipts you, you get from a credit card machine are estrogenic. The plastic you cover your food in is estrogenic. The plastic containers you buy your food from the supermarket are estrogenic. So we have so many fake estrogens in our environment. Even if you don't have genes that make you more susceptible, I believe now you're probably very um, liable to have issues with estrogen metabolism. That's why we're seeing so many people having problems with fibrocystic breasts and fibrocystic ovaries and endometriosis and all these estrogen-dominant type conditions. So we have to improve and we forcibly make your body clear it. And the, the clearance pathways are through glutathione, which is your major antioxidant, another pathway called glucuronidation, because that really helps to clear the estrogen. And we also use, you know, a variety of other things like sulfation. So phase two is critically important. But the biggest issue is the environmental load of estrogen. So that's why, so when you've got a toxic estrogen load, your good estrogen is decreased and your other hormones are affected as well, like your progesterone. And as you know, if if progesterone is not high enough, then you you can miscarry easily because you haven't got a nice, plush, rich endometrium for implantation. So it is critical for those first 12 weeks. But if you're in an estrogen-dominant um, environment, you will push your um, progesterone down, unfortunately. So that's one of the main things that we look at in fertility is to make sure that they, the patient does not have a high estrogen. And that doesn't just relate to men. One of the, uh, sorry, just to women, it relates to men as well. And I think that's one of the, the key factors for um, male infertility is that they're becoming estrogenic. And when you think about men drink beer on top of it, which is essentially hop, which is estrogenic, Males are becoming more and more estrogenic, which is affecting their fertility. So we do the same process with men to ensure that they are getting rid of these estrogens as well because that eventually can lead to prostate cancer. That's really interesting. So if, if I see a couple and they're struggling to conceive, um, in addition to the sperm tests that I will order for him and perhaps some genetic testing with karyotype and uh, preconception, genetic screening, looking for recessive conditions. What other things do you recommend that I order for him? Oh, def well, I definitely would do the estrogen metabolism. So that's not a blood estrogen. That is a metabolism test that we do through a specific lab. Um, and it's just a, basically a urine collection and it looks at how you're getting rid of the um, metabolites. Uh, I definitely would do homocysteine because homocysteine at least gives us a good indication of how that major pathway that makes SAMe is working or not. So having a high homocysteine, as we said, can be a risk factor for cardiovascular disease, but it can also tell us that the pathways are blocked and they're not working as best they should. If you have a low homocysteine, that can be equally as de detrimental because you then don't have enough homocysteine to pick up your, your folate to make SAMe. So high or low homocysteine can be a problem. Um, definitely the estrogen metabolism. Um, I would look at liver enzymes, which you, you would do anyway, but I would be looking to see if perhaps glutathione was low and if those liver enzymes are elevated, that can be an issue because the sperm obviously is very, very susceptible to any sort of toxins, and it can damage the quality of the sperm easily. So if liver enzymes are above 30, that could be an indication that, you know, obviously there's, um, there's some sort of detoxification process going on and we need to optimise quality and particularly when you can get a lot of fragmentation in the DNA. So you get this 
crappy quality DNA, particularly if detoxification isn't good. So going back to phase two detoxification, uh, NAC versus glutathione, when do you give, which one do you give? You know, can you explain the difference? Yeah, so NAC is N-acetylcysteine. And and what we look, particularly genetically, we look at the ability of someone to be able to regenerate their, their glutathione. And you need selenium, zinc, and N-acetylcysteine to regenerate glutathione. So there's actually no point initially, I don't think, of putting glutathione in if there's no capacity for that to be regenerated because glutathione becomes oxidized and you need to reduce it to have the benefit. Then you use it, it becomes oxidized, you reduce it to have the benefit. So you need N-acetylcysteine, selenium and zinc to regenerate it, but then you can put, once you know that that is in there, you can then put glutathione on top. So I tend to start with N-acetylcysteine, selenium and zinc, and then I'll put the glutathione in on the top once I know that that's established and they're okay and they deal with the, the levels quite well. They use NAC in, in a lot of things now, don't they? Yep. They use it in um, – I, I use it for patients who have got um, psychosis and, and literally are hearing voices and schizophrenia. Um, I use it um, because N-acetylcysteine is incredibly good for the brain. And it can actually settle the brain. And and I've had some young kids that, and it's so good to use in kids um, because it definitely helps with um, what we call glutamate sensitivity. So having high glutamate in the brain can actually make kids kids very ADD, ADHD, um, all sorts of learning difficulties. Um, they don't do particularly well. A lot of autistic kids have high glutamate levels. Um, and so we can use N-acetylcysteine really safely um, at quite high levels for long periods of time because it's having multiple benefits across multiple um, levels, not only the liver but also the brain, etc. Do you have any other... Um Things you want to bring up in regards to methylation before I ask you more questions about your business online, etc. Uh, any, any take-home messages for fertility practitioners, for example, like me? Yeah, I think the take-home message is that you will read a lot of um, research studies and you'll be influenced by possibly GPs and other people that say MTHFR doesn't matter in fertility. And I would absolutely categorically tell you that it does. It is probably, for me, one of the biggest factors in any miscarriage. And I guess the biggest, I guess the thing that disturbs me the most is that we're waiting for couples to have three, four, five, sometimes six miscarriages before somebody says, hey, have you ever checked to see if you've got MTHFR? And what I would like every single fertility practitioner to do is test the MTHFR upfront. Whenever someone comes to you and says, I would like to fall pregnant, you say, right, we're going to test and see if either of you have the MTHFR genetic polymorphism. And if we could screen that from the rooftop, you know, right around the world, I would do it right here and now. We have got to spread the word that it does matter and we could save thousands upon thousands upon millions of women having miscarriages every day because the rate of infertility is growing and growing and growing. 70 million couples worldwide are now affected by infertility. My personal point of view, and I'll probably get shouted down for this, but I'm going to say it anyway. Well, it's your personal point of view, isn't it? <laughs> it is my personal point of view. So you can say whatever you like. <laughs> yes. My personal point of view that isn't backed up by research, but it is my personal point of view, is that I believe that folic acid fortification of food and supplements is one aspect of why we're seeing an increase in infertility. Sure, we've got the environmental aspects. I I 100% agree with that. 
because as I said, we are estrogenizing our whole environment and we've got a heck of a lot more toxins than we ever had before. But folic acid, we do have some research that says at a level, it inhibits the folate pathway at a level. Now, the level is considered to be around about 200 to 300 micrograms. And when, when you first look at why folic acid fortification was introduced in the first place in the US, it was for those communities that could not afford um, any folate of any form in, in their vitamins. And there were a lot of neural tube defects. So they put it in the food, gave it to them, and it reduced the incidence of neural tube defects. There's no question about that. However, when you consider that all bread flour, by law, has to be fortified with folic acid. Most of the breakfast cereals we have are fortified with folic acid. Almost every packaged good made from flour is fortified with folic acid now. So the guesstimate by researchers is that most people on a standard American or Australian diet where they have cereal for breakfast, sandwiches for lunch, et cetera, et cetera, they're getting about 1,000 micrograms of folic acid. And what that is doing is shutting our folate pathway down. I believe this is a significant factor in increasing infertility around the world. And I've got a really good, if anyone wants to, I've got a really good, if I might say so myself, um, uh, webinar on folic acid and why you should take it out on the website, which is mthfrsupport.com.au. Um, I, would, I would just say to everyone, look, just look at it. Um, there's, there's enough research out there to suggest that, you know, just because we've used folic acid in the past, it really doesn't mean we should be doing it now. What do other clinicians think about this when you bring this up? What do they say? I think, I think the clinicians in my space, um, as in the practitioners who are members of my community who listen to me, they understand the research that I'm citing. They understand why I'm saying it. And I think 90% of them would say, you know what? You could be right. So it is part of my mission in life to see if I can prove this. Are you currently doing an honours? Is that right? I am, yes. Uh, So I'm actually uh, looking at the um, forms of folate that practitioners are using and those practitioners that are using, um, that are seeing infertility patients. So what form of folate are they still using and what dosages? so that we can get a bit of an understanding of what the general consensus out there is so that we can use that as a basis for more research. And when, when do you think this will be out? When will you finish your honours? The end of this year. Oh, good. Uh, yeah. The year is so, going quickly. I know, and given that we're bunkered in, it's going to give me more time to do it. <laughs> so being bunkered in is not so bad when you've got an online business as you do. So can you, can, you, can you give us some tips on how you create a good, sustainable online business? Yes, and I do thank my lucky stars um, that I, I did start my business Um, 10 years ago and because so many people wanted information on MTHFR and I was only one person, then there was, there's no other MTHFR clinic anywhere in the world. So I get patients from all over the world. So I really had no choice. So 20% of my patients just automatically started being online. And then that grew and grew and grew and we're probably now 85%. Very few people come in anymore because they find it way more convenient to be able to sit in their homes, not travel, see me, talk, um, and we've got five practitioners. So it's, it's really been great for them because some of them have had kids, some have moved, and, and it's just a great model. So we, used to, we started off um, using Skype and that suited us originally. Um, we didn't really have many other options back in those days, but it was a bit of a, a drag. The quality wasn't that great, and um, it was 
we always had to make sure we had the right Skype address cause, and that can be tricky because most people don't even know what their Skype address is. <laughs> so then we, we moved um, and we use now go, uh, an integration of a, a few apps. So we use um, Acuity Scheduling, which is an online scheduling um, uh, platform that can take multiple practitioners. Um, you can put in whatever length um, um, appointments you like and you can also um, put it on your website and people can book directly from that. So that works really well and the great thing about it is one click and it automatically bills. So you just say appointment finished, bang, it bills the credit card. So it's all integrated with software which is fantastic and that integrates with um, GoToMeeting which is a really good platform for any sort of meeting space. Um, so, it's, yeah, it's been fantastic. Patients love it because they can move um, appointments, change appointments. They don't have to ring up. They can do it all online, middle of the night, doesn't matter. Um, and everything's pretty automated. And it always works? You don't have any stuff-ups? No, always works. That's pretty good. Yeah, it's really good. Um, it's it's the only thing that makes it not work if um, – if someone's internet connection is so bad, and then if that's the case, we tend to take the videos off and just talk as if we're talking over the phone, and that works well. Just some people, particularly in remote areas, their internet isn't quite as good as us here, so we just sort of tend to work with what we've got. And some people ring up. So the good thing about that system is you can ring up on a phone as well. You don't have to have a video. So again. For the elderly or people who are in remote communities, they don't have good access to um, internet, they can just ring us and it comes in through the system as it would a video call and uh, we just talk to each other over the internet. That's great. And, and mm. overseas-wise, do you see mainly see Americans? Who are your overseas clients mainly? Oh, yes, a lot, of, lot from the US and Canada. Um, but we also have a huge, huge following in Greece. Because Greece? Greece? Yes, because the Greeks and the Mediterraneans have some of the highest percentages of MTHVR polymorphisms in the world. So nearly 65% of all Greeks have polymorphisms and their percentage of those that are homozygous are higher than most. Is that right? I'm Being Greek, yes. I, I never knew that of Greek background. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah. So Greek Greek population, huge population of MTHVR homozygous, the biggest in the world. That is outside outside Mexicans. Mexicans Mexican. is the second. Yeah, the <laughs> second highest. <laughs> Isn't genetics amazing? I find it so interesting. Mm. Now I know you've collaborated with some pretty cool people. Uh, do you have a dream collaboration? In terms of my everyday business or just um, people I love talking with about the on the re this space? Both. Ah, uh, okay. So I did a conference in the US um, about 18 months ago and what was awesome is that I got a lot of um, really geeky biochemical people to speak Um <laughs> And it was just so delightful to be able to jump into conversation about a pathway and talk about this and talk about that and what happens if this. And one of them came up to me and he said, look, I just, I just can't understand why this would present this way when you have this polymorphism. And I said, oh, look, I, I actually think it would be X, Y, and Z. He goes, hmm, I haven't thought about it like that. Oh, that's <laughs> awesome. Thank you. So it's like this. It's just great to be in that environment. So Ben Lynch um, is someone that um, he he started MTHFAR in um, the US, mthfar.net.au.net, um, and he's been always um, huge in this space. Um, he's sort of like my counterpart in um, the US. So I speak to him regularly. I do webinars with him. We try and do collaborative webinars as much as we possibly can with other practitioners um, because we've got a lot of 
um, practitioners here in Australia that love the geekiness and love the biochemistry and love and understanding the genetics as much as I do. So we really try and do these collaborations and find like-minded people. I mean, unfortunately, our, our um, conference won't go ahead this year, but we may even do something online next year. We may even keep it online and make it easier. But it's yeah, the collaborations are great because this is such a big area and you can't hope to know it all. But I have met some really brilliant practitioners through what I've done and speaking at conferences and just even companies that are making methylation products that I've spoken to and collaborated with and done events with, um, spoken at their conferences. You know, this is a really, really exciting field. And when you see the results of patients who some of them have had 30, 40, 50 years of ill health and you can make a tangible difference in weeks, that's fantastic. That is so exciting. So you know you're on the right path when you can get a, a reaction like that, you know, like the the B12 is the biggest thing, I think. If I can see that someone has a genetic deficiency in B12 and I give them B12 injections, it can be life-changing within weeks. And then you can add the other bits and pieces on top of it, like the folate, because the biggest issue has always been that their methylation is just squashed by the lack of B12. That's why it worries me so much with people being vegan and vegetarian if they're not taking B12. Mm. I mean, I, which, I can't remember what book I was reading. Actually, no, I picked up a, a book at Dimix recently about veganism and it was interesting when I opened up the book, it did talk about the need for supplements. So if you're going to become a vegan, we strongly recommend you take iodine, B12, uh, zinc, and I thought, oh, that's, that's good to, to see that. You know, that is good to yeah, see that. Yeah, yeah. and it's yeah. an Australian book, actually. Uh, pretty good. good one. Yeah. Um, speaking of books, I know Ben Lynch has a book out um, about his work. What other books do you recommend people pick up and read um, in regards to MTHFR methylation um, that may help them? Do you know what? We are really seriously lacking in this area, and I, I can't actually tell you that there is one good book on it. There's books on genetics and there's books, you know, as you say, Ben Lynch has got his, which is talking about the different genetic SNPs that affect methylation. But is there a good one on, on methylation? I mean, there's, there's biochemistry books, which I've got, which I love reading. But for the general person that wants to know more, I can't actually say I could recommend one. I think what would be really helpful is... Uh producing a book that's really quite simplified. So when I was in Japan last year, I picked up a couple of manga books and mm-hmm. the manga books were biochemistry and physiology, but the way that they are illustrated and presented make really complex ideas really simple. Yeah. And it would be great to see a book like that in, in terms of uh, its out its outline, um, almost like a comic Type of thing, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Well, that is on my. It is on my list. I have started one. I just haven't uh, had the time to complete it. But mm. that is that is definitely a mission for next year. And my last question to you: uh, Which people have been your biggest inspirations in your life? Oh, from a work perspective. I work, definitely, work and life, yep. Work and life, yeah. I think definitely um, the likes of um, Ben Lynch, who first sort of discovered this MTHFR, which really set me on the path to understanding it more. I think um, personally, my granny, I loved my granny. She was such an inspirational person. I used to spend a lot of time with her. Um, she just, loved life, loved every day, took every day as it came. And I think we've got a lot to learn from things like that, you know, just being able to, particularly now, you know, everyone's going through a really tough time and I know things are pretty bleak, but 
you know, just to be able to go for a walk and appreciate at least, you know, we are walking around with the sun shining and, you know, birds chirping and there's, there is some good. Hopefully there's some good to come out of this. I mean, you would hope so, wouldn't you? Yeah, I um, feel like the planet's getting a major reset. Yeah, a lot of people have said that. It's a pretty tough way to do a reset though, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> We're going down in history, that's for sure. We are, yeah. We just have to hope that we all come out of it really well the other end. Mm. But I, you know, I think um, the one thing that we've got to do is support each other and stick together and um, there's going to be a lot of people that need our support at the back end of this you know, mentally particularly mm. because I think stress and as we said, metals, good old metals are used up so much in stress and with people losing their jobs and potentially their houses, I think stress levels are really going to suffer and we're going to need a lot of support for people mentally, um, nutritionally post this. And uh, hence the, the great thing about online business, people can reach you. They don't have to leave their house. No, that's a great thing. I mean, I've been working from home this week and I've got to say I've really loved it. Um, A, I don't have to get dressed up to go to work um, (laughs) because I'm an old-fashioned corporate girl, so I pretty well always wear a jacket and, you know, get dressed up to go to work. But it's been quite nice to sort of sit here and still see my patients and just walk to the end of the the hallway um, to get to my office, which is yeah, it's been a bit different, but I'm I'm really enjoying it. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people are realizing the power of online. So I thank you for sharing your tips, Caroline, and uh, you thank you so much welcome. for chatting to us today and to uh, you know educating me. I've certainly learned a lot from you. So thank you so much. You are most welcome. It's always a delight to have a chat to you, Natasha. I I and I'm forever grateful that you are so supportive of what I do and what our clinic does. And I always get so excited when I see one of your patients coming through the system because I know that they've been well looked after and I love the collaborative um, relationship that we've got and it, it, it just, it's fantastic. So I've got to say thank you to you. Oh, I love it too. Thank you so much. I hope you've enjoyed this episode, ladies, with the passionate and knowledgeable Caroline Nadowski. I hope it made you question things and that you learnt lots like I did. Please share this episode with others if you think it will help them. Please subscribe to the Fanny Mechanic channel and if you haven't already, hop over and give the show a fantastic rating. Shoot me a message on Instagram, Dr. Tash Fanny Mechanic, and join the Fanny Mechanic podcast group on Facebook. Let me know of any topics you'd like to hear cool people I can interview or books to read. Until next time, stay fantabulous.